Boker Tov, good morning everyone. Glad you're with me on uh, a special week of what we have uh, normally been calling the Aliyah Day. Uh, but this week we've entitled it Shavuot, Insights to the Yom Tov. This is episode one as we're going to be looking at uh, Shavuot this week because Shavuot is coming up um, on Thursday evening is the Arab Shavuot and Friday is Shavuot. And then we have Shabbat, and so on the uh, calendar we kind of uh, skip, if you will, a, a parasha in lieu of the holiday. And so this week we're going to be looking at Shavuot and uh, following the uh, teaching on that and see what Hashem wants to show us about this amazing insight. So looking forward to having everyone with us. Uh, as I said, Erev Shavuot is on this coming Thursday night. Uh, we're going to have uh, Arab at, at our various homes, and then we'll gather here at the synagogue beginning at 10 o'clock in the evening for what will be an all-night uh, Torah study, a tikkun le shavuot, um, the, the uh, evening of, of all-night Torah study in which we immerse ourselves spiritually and literally in the Word of God and help to bring tikkun to ourselves, to our families, to our world. Uh, and the merit of Messiah Yeshua. So we'll be doing that from 10 a.m. until 6 a.m. And then on Shavuot, we have um, moved our service back to Minka service for obvious reasons, because some of us will need to go home and take a nap or, or two uh, as we are, uh, we'll be up all night. Um, we'll do like we did last year, by the way. We'll stay up all night saying the Torah, and then Bezrat Hashem will have a minion as we did last year, and we'll have uh, a little shakarit uh, prayer time, wrapping, um, and so on, uh, and, and we'll go from there to our homes to get some sweet little sleep, and then we'll come back from Inca on Shavuot service, Baruch Hashem. So be a part of that with us, if you will, that would be uh, fantastic. Um, so Friday is a Yom Tov, which means it's uh, similar to a Shabbat. Although uh, you can cook on the Yom Tov for the Yom Tov, and in this case for the Yom Tov and for Shabbat, because I will be saying the bracha for all of us to be able to do that. And then, of course, Shav uh, uh, um, Shavuot, of course, is uh, on Friday, and then we have Shabbat is Shabbat, Baruch Hashem, um, the regular Shabbat. So, uh, in other news, um, I and the Rebetzin and uh, the Hazan and a, a couple other folks were able to immerse in the mikveh last night for the very first time, the very first time ever the mikveh was used. And uh, myself and the Rebetzin uh, immersed in the mikveh uh, for the first time. It was uh, an indescribable experience. Um, and first of all, it's perfect. Everything is perfect. Um you know, uh, we were, uh, by the way, you know, people have said uh, they can't wait to use the mikvah, understandably so. Well, we needed to use the mikvah first, um, uh, if for no other reason than to kind of see how it was going to work. Not the mikvah itself, the mikvah was fine, but uh, there's some things that, uh, you know, it's new construction. So there are some issues uh, with some plumbing um, that didn't quite work well. Uh, so we're going to have to have the plumber come out and uh, correct those issues. So, so just so you know, 
um, people say, man, I wish I could have come, come and done a bunch of that this week with, with it being kind of ready. Well, it, you wouldn't have been able to anyway. So uh, because there's some things that are crucial that need to work well and they're not presently work well, it's not a probably not a big deal. It's just a matter of calling the plumber out and, and having those things corrected. But the point being is that we uh, working out those bugs. But otherwise, it's a beautiful experience. The mikvah, uh, in terms of aesthetics, is just stunningly gorgeous. Um, I can't express that enough. It is amazing. And I think that you're all going to be, like, uh, blown away. So it's amazing. So anyway, it's wonderful. The water was wonderful. It's just a wonderful experience. Baruch Hashem. So... Um, we are going to be studying Shavuot, so I want us to turn in the Chumash. Uh, we're going to be looking at the, the principal uh, verses that deal with uh, the counting of the Omer and, uh, and Shavuot, and then we'll get into some insights. This, As I said, this whole week is going to be insights into Shavuot. It's going to be mind-blowing. It's going to be a wonderful experience for everybody. If you have the article Humash, I'm on page 683, and we'll be looking at chapter 23 in the book of Leviticus. Uh, we'll begin reading in chapter in verse nine, and then we'll just share, share some insights, some exegesis uh, on this holiday, and to see um, uh, what's going on. So it says, Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, "Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When when you shall enter the land that I give you, and you reap its harvest, you shall bring an omer from your first harvest to the kohen." He shall wave the Omer before Adonai to gain favor for you. On the morrow of the rest day, the Kohen shall wave it. On the day you wave the Omer, you shall perform the service of an unblemished lamb in its first year as an elevation offering to Adonai. Its meal offering shall be tenth ephah of fine flour mixed with oil. A fire offering to Adonai, a satisfied aroma, and its libation shall be wine a quarter hen. You shall not eat bread or roasted kernels or plump kernels until this very day, until you bring the offering of your God. It is an eternal decree for your generations and all your dwelling places. You shall count for yourselves from the morrow of the rest day and the day which you bring the Omer, the wave offering, seven weeks they shall be complete. Until the morrow of the seventh week you shall count fifty days. And you shall offer a new meal offering to Adonai. From your dwelling places you shall bring bread that shall be waved, two loaves made of two-tenth ephah, they shall be fine flour. They shall be baked leavened, first offerings to Adonai. With the bread you shall offer seven unblemished lambs in their first year, one young bull and two rams. They shall be an elevation offering to Adonai, with their meal offering and their libations. A fire offering, a sasroma to Adonai. You shall make one he-goat as a sin offering, and two lambs in their first year as a feast peace offering. The Kohen shall wave them before the first Offering breads as a wave service for Adonai upon the two sheep. They shall be holy for Adonai and for the Kohen. You shall convoke on this very day. There shall be a holy convocation for you, for yourselves. And you shall do no laborious work. It is an eternal decree in your dwelling places for your generations. So that is the reading of uh, this, the festival of Shavuot. And so I have some, uh, just a number of, of insights I want to share. And I'm just going to begin here with um, some insights. This comes from the Art Scroll uh, Mazora series on Shavuot. I mentioned this book uh, one time on the Aliyah not too long ago, this little book here. These little books that Art Scroll puts out are excellent. They have, they have all of them for <coughs> the various um, 
uh, holidays. But I want to begin with this reminder, okay? This reminder that I have said recently. It says here, in Judaism, a festival is not a commemoration of a given historic event. Rather, it is a time that pulsates with the spiritual light which was manifest when that event occurred. So this is a very critical thing to understand when we're talking about Jewish holidays, otherwise known as biblical holidays or the holidays of Hashem, which are all synonymous terms. When we have a holiday in Judaism, we are experiencing the same we're experiencing the same kedusha of that holiday. We're experiencing the very same anointing, the very same power, the very same divine energy on that holiday that was experienced at the time that that holiday occurred. So when we are going to be entering into Shavuot here at the end of this week, then we are going to be entering into the very same spiritual power that existed in front of Mount Sinai at the time of the giving of the Torah. Now, I want to point something out here. And the reason I want to say what I'm about to say is because we have many people, thank God, who come here from Hebrew roots backgrounds. They get involved in the Hebrew roots background. They begin to desire more. They begin to see some some, some problematic um, whatever. And they start to understand that maybe that's not quite the right way. And so in Hebrew roots circles, um, the, the, the Gentiles that lead those they, the, one of the principal things they like to do is to change the calendar. That's like a, a, almost a militant thing. It's, like, it's almost like a rite of passage. It's like, welcome to Torah, let's change the calendar. And um, they, they count the Omer differently than Jews uh, have ever counted, right? So uh, we know, it's a historical fact, let me put it this way. It's a historical fact. It's a known fact. It doesn't require any type of uh, exegesis scripture. We know for a fact from first century accounts, historical accounts, that Jews have always counted the Omer the way in which we count it today. And Jews all over the world counted the same way. And therefore, we all celebrate Shavuot at the same time. This is a historical fact. It's not really up for debate. But for whatever reason, the non-Jews who head up the Hebrew Roots Movement want to change the calendar. Okay, and as a result, they count differently, and they arrive at Shavuot um, differently than Jews do, right? And uh, you can ask yourself, well, okay, whatever. What's the big deal? They're they're still celebrating the giving of the Torah. Who cares? Well, there's aside from the from the from the deep the deep rooted spiritual mess that that causes one to desire to change the calendar to begin with. That that in and of itself is a whole nother problem. But aside from that, putting that aside, why would we even want to do that? When I just said what I said, it becomes a significant problem. Because when you're outside of God's time, then you're outside of God's anointing. And so Jews all over the world for all time, for all time, it's a historical fact, for all time have been counting the Omer the way in which we count it, from the 16th of Nisan, which leads us to the 6th of Sivan for Shavuot. And as a result, we have been in the anointing of the giving of the Torah for all these many centuries, many millennia. 
But if you are counting differently, then you're never in that anointing. You're never in that spiritual power. You're never in that divine energy. And, and by the way, who was it that maintains, or who is it that maintains the Torah still today? The Jews. If it weren't for we Jews, then the people in the Hebrew Roots movement, the non-Jews in the Hebrew Roots movement, would not even know what the Torah is. They wouldn't know anything about it. They wouldn't be able to go to, uh, you know, TorahTime.com or Chabad.org or Lapid, MyLapid.com to find out about it because it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for us. So all I'm trying to say is this is why it's so important not to make your own stuff up. Because it's not about commemoration. It's not about just we're having a 4th of July party. It's not just about, hey, we're, do, we're having an event here to remember something that happened way back when. No, we're actually tap, tapping in to the divine energy of that, that event. And when you're off, <clears throat> you're off. It's like I used to say, um, I used to use this analogy talking about being off a little bit. <clears throat> um, I went to navigation school and... Um, a long, long time ago. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I, I would have to go to remedial navigation school today. Don't, don't put me on a boat. I'd have to take a refresher course. But way back then, I actually went to navigation school in, in a naval uh, station in Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, learned how to read the maps and the charts and those kind of things. And that was really cool. But one thing we learned right away is it's very, very, very important when you're out on the open ocean and there's not, you know, there's no uh, inter interstate signs out there to pay close attention to your compass. Because being off a little bit, depending on the distance, you might be, you say, well, I'm, I'm off like a, a half a degree. Who cares? Well, that could put you, depending on, on where you began, a hundred to perhaps a thousand miles off course when you're finally getting to your to what's supposed to be your destination. So instead of reaching the beach where we're supposed to, you might reach the beach where the enemy is, and that would be obviously bad. So this is why it's important not to make stuff up, especially since you've been in Torah for, oh, I don't know, a few minutes. So it says here, going on to another in, uh, insight, the source of our sustenance, it says, but if God, God seeks to confer benefits upon man, okay, this is the idea. God gives us the Torah, why? Because it's the purpose of redemption. There's an insight here that says, when God first revealed himself to Moses and instructed him to return from Midian to Egypt so that the process of redemption uh, could, could begin... Moses asked, what merit does Israel possess that they should depart from Egypt? To which God responded, when you take the people out of Egypt, you will all worship uh, God at this mountain, at the very mountain. So a lot of people don't realize that the, the burning bush actually occurred on Mount Sinai. You know, a lot of people miss that, I find, when I'm talking to them through the years, that the burning bush occurred on Mount Sinai. And so Hashem said, listen, I want you to go and set my people free from Pharaoh. A lot of people hear that and they're like, wait, the, the whole point of redemption 
is to be set free from Pharaoh. That's what, that's what was going on there. God said, go, let my people go. So let my people go is the point of redemption. No, it's not. That's phase one. <laughs> phase one was let my people go. Phase two, the purpose of redemption was bring them back to right here to this holy mountain. Why? So that they could worship me. So the whole point of redemption is Torah. You have to brand that into your brain to understand that the whole point of you and I being set free from the clutches of Pharaoh was so that we could follow God's holy Torah. That's the purpose. So, the Torah is seen as God's divine benefits to man. And yet at the same time, Torah is something we're supposed to do. So wait a minute. So Torah is possesses within it divine benefits and blessings. But yet we have to do it in order to activate those blessings. So, let's just wrap our head around this for a moment. Torah is a divine gift that we really didn't merit. We didn't do anything to earn it. In fact, when God decided to call us out of Egypt to bring us to the mountain so that we could receive the Torah, at the moment he said that to Moses... We were, A, slaves in Egypt, and B, idolaters. According to the sages, on the 49th level of sin or impurity, which means that we were just a hair's breadth from not being able to be redeemed. But like the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter, while we were yet sinners, Mashiach died for us. Again, there's nothing new in the New Testament. You say, oh man, Yeshua died for us while we were still sinners. That Boy, that's, that's a whole lot of grace right there. Yes, yes it is, and it's nothing new. God said, while you're yet idolaters, I'm calling you to my mountain. So we didn't do anything to earn it. So, so the Torah is a divine gift. It's a 100% gift. And yet, a gift of grace, by the way, and yet we have to work it to unlock it. Why? Well, here's the answer. It says, But if God seeks to confer benefits upon man, why does he not do so without requiring difficult choices? Why do we have to overcome our Yetzirah? Why do we have to eat certain foods, wear certain clothes, act a certain way, be loving, be compassionate, be kind, don't steal, don't murder, don't cheat, don't lie, don't chew tobacco, don't go with girls that do. Why do we have to do that? It says here, because only by giving man the opportunity and even <clears throat> the ability to transgress his commands would God's reward be meaningful. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, the grace message has proven to be a disaster. This is why the more the grace message has been preached, the less moral, the less holy, the less faithful people have become. 
because something that's just giving to given to you doesn't have nearly the meaning is as something earned. Think about somebody who is uh, has earned a PhD. They've spent years of school and tens of thousands of dollars versus somebody who's been who's just given a piece of paper that says here you're a PhD because we think you're so smart. It's there's nowhere near the appreciation. There's nowhere near the pride. So it says here, God knows this. Now, now why does God know this about by by the way, what I just said is human nature. It's a fact. It's human nature. You take care of the car that you bought a whole lot better than you take care of the car that was given to you. 100%. Okay? No one can deny that. Um, now, understand this is human nature. Now, I'm just going to throw out a question. Who created humans? God. So God knows human nature, right? He knows, therefore, if he just gives us something, free grace, don't do a thing. Not only, you understand the grace message is taught, and many of you know this, but again, a lot. Of, as I said earlier, a lot of people come to us from Hebrew roots, thank God. <clears throat> and a lot of people come from Christianity, thank God. So we're, my, my hope is to provide correction, all right? So in the grace message, it's, one is taught not only should you not work for your salvation, which means following God's law, but rather, if even if, if you do, then you're going to go right to hell. So in other words, grace says no need to, to eat kosher anymore because God has set you free from the law. That's the grace message, which of course is actually blasphemous, but that's the message. And, and then if somebody says, okay, I got it, I got it. I, I don't have to eat kosher because of grace. But you know what? I want to because God said so. If you say that in a, in a Christian environment nine times out of ten, you'll be told one way or the other, don't do that because you're trampling grace underfoot and you'll end up going to hell. So no, not, all, not only are you told that you don't have to follow God's law, but you're actually taught that you shouldn't. This is why there's so much so much fear when people hear the Torah message and it sounds, um, it, you know, it, it it bears witness in their spirit. There's so much fear. I have I can't tell you how many people I've counseled through the years trying to help them through that fear because they've been taught that if they do the word of God, they're going right to Gehenna. Like do not pass go. They've just ignored the old rugged cross and they're they're out. Okay, so going back to this insight, his commandments, it says his commands would, would God's reward with that, I'm sorry, let me back up. So he's saying, listen, generosity is not complete unless the recipient feels the pleasure of having earned the gift. That, that sounds like an oxymoron, right? Generosity would not be complete unless the recipient feels the pleasure of having earned the gift. It says unearned gifts are, quote, the bread of shame, end quote. 
People take pride in what they have worked for, not in what they have been given. The winner of the lottery is happy, not proud. It is understandable, therefore, that God takes pleasure in Israel's fulfillment of his commandments, not because he is diminished without it, as a, factor, as a factory owner would suffer if his foreman failed to produce the products needed to, to fill urgent orders, but because he himself has ordained that he wanted man to deserve every possible reward. Thus, God longs for man's good deeds more than man realizes in the simile of the sages, more than a calf wishes to nurse from its mother, the cow wishes the calf to nurse. This comes from Pesachim 112b. So the, the interesting thing about the giving of the Torah is that it is a gift of grace to us. It was given to us when we did not merit it at all. And yet God, part of the grace, part of the gift was our ability to, to do it so that we would earn a blessing. Why? Because God knew that if he, if he can teach a man to fish, it will make him a much stronger personality than if he just gives men fish. Isn't that interesting, too, if we think about that? Yeshua said to, the, to his disciples, I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say, I'll, I'll just, I'm just going to give you fish. Don't worry, I'll do all the fishing. Follow me and be collectors of fish. That's not what he said. He didn't say to his disciples, behold, I'll make you collectors of fish. I'll do the fishing, you just collect them. No, he said, I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, you're going to have the, the great privilege of doing this. You know, this goes back to something that Haver said yesterday in the Menashe Minutes that he shares on Shabbat right before Minka. Minutes with Menashe. Minutes with Menashe. Anyway, he said this yesterday. It's very good. It fits in what I've just said. He's talking about a rabbi, and I don't remember the whole quote exactly, but this rabbi was talking about um, the various books that he's written, and he was thanking God for, um, it was the Hafezheim, uh, Haver, now that I remember, it was the Hafezheim, and it was, it was Hafezheim was talking about he had written this work, and he had written that work, and he was th giving God thanks for the ability to write this book and that book and so on. <clears throat> but he said to Hashem, but I, I haven't done anything for you. And so he was basically repenting or, or you know, uh, lamenting that he hadn't done anything for Hashem. And now somebody hears that and like, wait a minute. You wrote this holy book and that holy book and this other holy book and you haven't done anything for Hashem. And it was just an acknowledgement that it's really God who gives us the power to do anything that we do whatsoever so therefore, even when we do good things, it's not us doing good things. So we think, well, I've done a lot of work for God. No, you haven't. It's really God working through you. This is what people miss. So they say, well, you know, you're, you're doing all this Torah stuff and you're trying to work for your salvation. No, 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 no. You missed it. You've missed it. Torah is grace. So the ability to, to, for me to live a Torah life and to do certain mitzvahs, it's not me doing it. It's Hashem doing it through me. And as a result of me being able to do it, that in of itself is an act of grace. 
The fact that I get to have an Arab Shabbat and lift up the Kiddush and lift up the Hala and say the Brachas, I don't deserve that. There's nothing about me that, 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 that needs to be there. It's an act of grace that I have the ability to be there to begin with. This is why the Apostle Paul, everybody likes to quote Paul all the time, but wasn't it Paul who said that it's not me, but the power of God working through me that's doing these things? Wasn't it he who said that? Paul, who's supposed to be the one who is the the source of the grace message, he's not really, but he's supposed to be, but he's the one who said, even when I do the works, it's not the work that I do, it's the work of God working through me. Where shall I go from here? Let me look. Ah, well, this is another good one. I'm on the same lines. There's so much to be shared about Shavuot, but here's another good one. Um, why can't we boast? All right? So we're Jewish people. We should be able to boast, right? We have such a great pedigree, all this wonderful stuff. Why can't we be haughty? And say, boy, I'm sure I'm glad I'm not like the nations. Well, it says here, Moses wondered what the people had done to deserve a miraculous redemption. Because miracles do not occur in a vacuum. They must be earned. It says, if, as the angels argued at the time of the splitting of the sea, both Jews and the Egyptians were idol worshippers, then by what virtue should Israel be redeemed and Egypt destroyed as a major power? It was no secret that the long years of exile and servitude have left Israel in a state of severe spiritual debilitation, so Moses' question was logical and compelling. In response, God told him, This is your sign that I have sent you. When you take people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. The nation deserved to be redeemed because... It was destined to stand at Mount Sinai and receive the Torah. Less than three months after leaving Egypt. God's answer showed that people can be judged and even rewarded on the basis of their potential. The very fact that Israel had within itself the capacity for such growth was sufficient reason to justify the exodus. See, we were, we were sinners along with the Egyptians. We were idolaters along with the Egyptians. We didn't have, we have no reason to boast. We have no reason to be prideful or arrogant. God said to the angels and God said to Moses, the reason that I'm able to redeem them and I'm going to destroy the Egyptians is because I know that the people that I'm about to redeem will stand at my, my mountain and say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord whereas the others would not. But again, it's grace, because only God knows who has that potential and who doesn't. End of our Aliyah session today. We will be back tomorrow with God's help for Shavuot Insights into the Yom Tov, Episode 2. There is a lot more to share, believe me. We will get to that as best possible. Until then, have a blessed, wonderful, and amazing day. We will see everybody manana.